Welcome back to Wake Up and Smell the Coffee with me, Lizzie Daly, and Tom the Blowfish Herd. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the deadliest species on Earth. What is the deadliest species on Earth? Over the last 500 million years, more than 90% of all organisms that have lived on Earth have become extinct in a series of five mass extinction events. The most recent one, of course, being in the Cretaceous Paleogene Age around 66 million years ago, which, of course, as you all know, wiped out the dinosaurs. However, now scientists believe the world has begun a sixth mass extinction, the first to be caused by a species you'll probably know, Homo sapiens. That is us. So in a recent study by the WWF, they stated that humans have wiped out 60% of animal populations since 1970. Tom. What a statistic. 60%. It's terrifying. It's really, really, really terrifying. And you're talking about so many species. I think that a lot of people can kind of register to the fact that they don't see hedgehogs as often as they used to. Or, you know, oh, when they were a kid, they might have seen slow worms and that kind of thing. But I know myself in in my own sphere that shark populations in the uh, northeast Atlantic, so that's our part of the sea, in the same time period, some of them dropped by 90%. I mean, the the kind of loss we're seeing, I don't think people can really, really get their sort of the mind behind it. You're talking about taking, say, the population of London and in, what, 50 years? Yeah, the 1970 to now, isn't it? 50 years. You're talking about taking the population of London and more than halving it. I mean, that is insane. It's such a big number. Where do we start? Where do we start? And, and and bringing it back to this deadliest species, you know, if I talk or, you know, as a biologist, we talk about all these amazing and ferocious animals all the time, right? And we label the deadliest species on Earth as, I mean, what would you label the deadliest species on Earth as if not humans in this case? Oh, it's this is a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's like... If, uh, Pick well, your favourite. Actually, you'll think you'll find... Um, you know, it is a tricky one because the 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 biggest body count goes down to mosquitoes, doesn't it? I think we all know. Uh, although, uh, I think we need to put some teeth in so we can talk. <laughs> but I think we all know that obviously mosquitoes uh, have killed the most people. Then you question the sort of the effectiveness of a species, and you look at the way that you know ants they can move through parts of a forest, wiping everything out in front of them. Look at the way that orcas can work together to hunt prey in the most you know unique ways. There's kind of a sexy side to the concept of deadliest that we can see and we can appreciate as you know, fans of wildlife. We see, oh, this animal is so deadly; it does its job so well. But then you just get the body count. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting with this particular article, you know, it's not just saying humans have a particular adaptation or behaviour which is deadly. There's a lot of factors, you know, which are down to humans. We're talking about habitat destruction, overhunting, toxic pollution, invasion of alien species and climate change, all down to us. And if you look back in history, 
The only link really with the extinction of species may be because of hunting, right? It's very simplistic and um, only slightly effective human impact. Not being an anthropologist, and let's state that one straight away, I think the the shift from hunter-gatherers to farming and then the stabilisation of the human population is the start of the landslide because we went from a hand-to-mouth existence to one where we were planning ahead and prepping ahead and we needed space and that's the key word isn't it it's space and we're always looking at the way that animals you know fight and vie with each other i you know i'll always come back to the oceans that's where you know my heart lies corals fight each other you know they they will attack each other at night for the best space on the reef we know that trees can actually give off certain chemical signals to stop other trees growing around them there's even a species of tree that uses ants which it hosts in its bark and of a night these ants disappear, disappear down the bark and go out around the tree to eat other saplings that aren't of that tree so life in itself impacts the area around it but we've always been leading up to that sort of key moment we've always been playing by the same rules as everything else and then they changed and you know where where can you first start blaming us i mean the uk would have wolves didn't it we had wolves gosh yes yeah welding and exactly <clears throat> so those projects entirely you know wolves you know the european bear all those kind of things now did you know was that the first thing or was that going to happen naturally or I th- and I think that it suddenly becomes it's really cut and dry when you've got something as horrible as say shark finning you know that's wrong but the physical impact of humans just living and being when does that become wrong you know when do you start saying oh no you don't have a right to live and the world around you has more of a right to live I think that that's the real tricky issue that we never ever went through as we were developing as a species Mm, definitely and it is I mean I've spent a lot of my time just kind of by by accident in a way I never really set out to be uh, a biologist or or somebody who really investigates the relationship between humans and wildlife but for me I do think this is one of the biggest uh, challenges the future the future of conservation and and future generations will face because as you mentioned it's about space and it's about resources and all of a sudden we're building up this world of I'm going to say it the elephant in the room right overpopulation and overconsumption leading actually back to this whole single use attitude right this throwaway society that we have of just ease and and um, going you using what we can because we can right and um i mean i I don't know about you tom but i've experienced um or seen for myself particular stories of human wildlife conflict have you seen that directly in in what you've done throughout your career i remember when we were in the bahamas and uh we were there because we were looking at the impact of lionfish on coral reefs now lionfish shouldn't be in the bahamas lionfish are actually native to the indo-pacific where they have predators so a lionfish for anyone that out there that's thinking what are you talking about a lionfish looks like a vionetta in a fish form and if you've never had a vionetta you've not lived in a frilly vionetta frilly vi- i love it isn't it it's beautiful because <laughs> you know what a lionfish is it's a, it's a it's a vionetta of fish but they're also very venomous so they've got these 13 venomous spines which means that uh, as a predator 
you don't really want to eat them and certainly as a human you don't want to get stung by these spines anyway there are predators which eat them in the pacific but they've made their way across to the caribbean to the atlantic where there are no predators which currently eat them and this means that they've just got carte blanche to basically feed on everything on the reefs and reefs are very complicated beautifully balanced systems and as the lionfish have smashed the uh the the tangs and the surgeon fish that keep the reefs clear of algae the reefs are starting to die so we're seeing a massive catastrophic impact here from just these lionfish coming across and they've come across because of us you know we've made that happen so here we haven't even had a direct impact no one's gone you know what i'm going to smash those coral reefs our existence Mm. has created this kind of event so i was there seeing this thinking you know wow what you know what an enormous impact this has had the I would almost say it's carelessness, but it's not. It's just the way that we have such big impact on the Earth. Let's move one species from column A to column B, where it has no natural predators. And there's even another story based in the Bahamas. This is an area where uh, the people that live there are really keen on eating conch. Really keen on it. They love conch. And the queen conch is under threat. And you'd see piles and it was really grim because it reminded me of the horrible pictures you used to see of the ivory trade and the horrible pictures you used to see of like the bisons in in north america in the 1900s like piles of skulls of piles of shells as, as tall as you you know huge shells and you know it really hit me in the face and i said to one of the guys we were with i said do you think you should probably stop eating conch and he said to me without missing a beat he looked at me and he said hungry dog will eat grass wow and i just thought that's it isn't it we we are there at that stage where we want it regardless. You know, um, yeah, um, we will eat the last conch because we want to eat the last conch. Because we can. Because Absolutely. we can, exactly. And and that resonates across the world. You know, I, I recently went to South America and in this article, it's really interesting, it says that South and Central America is the worst affected region globally, an 89% total drop drop of species um there's an amazing frog aquatic freshwater frog all frogs are amazing they are they i are. know Let's right face it. but we should be looking at frogs i mean they are terrestrial and aquatic right and a lot of the time they're fa- affected by a variety of these global issues whether it's habitat destruction or climate change um but in theme of eating just for because we can yeah, there's a lake called lake titicaca yes i know what you're going mountains. you're talking about the titicaca frog the scrotum frog yes i wasn't going to go there you see i I didn't want to lower You've the class. You've got to do it. You've got to do it because it looks like, like a, a lake titty cock. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Thank you, Lizzie. It's, essentially, there is science behind this. Bear with us. The scrotum frog has has all this excess skin and it's simply down to the habitat in which it lives. You know, it's so high up in the mountains, one of the, the highest mountains in the world, actually, in the Andean mountains, the Lake Titicaca, and there's not much oxygen there extreme radiation um, and it's freezing temperatures and this frog has adapted to live there. It's a fantastic extreme example of how frogs really are that amazing and local people just eat them as a delicacy and they are critically endangered um, and it's just, it seems that we are as as a species, we seem to be living up to this deadliest species on Earth. Um, and kind of throwing it back to somewhere completely different, but uh, a bit closer to home, I recently did a project on seals. Do you know about this in Scotland? Uh, the yeah, sh- yeah, yeah. The, the issue with the, uh, the seals, uh, their words, pestering the fish farms. 
I mean, how dare a seal want to eat fish? I mean, come on. In its natural environment. How dare yeah. they? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and I want to actually ask you about aquacultural, uh, the aquacultural industry, because you mentioned it earlier, it's about space and how we use land is really important in this, in this managing relationship between wildlife and humans. But Tom is absolutely right. It is mind-blowing that at the cost of us having farmed salmon for us wanting to eat salmon, we're shooting an iconic marine mammal on our coasts to this day. I mean, it's bonkers. What do you, I mean, your take on the aquacultural industry, it's important, it provides loads of jobs, it's huge um, for the economy of Scotland, the UK, the world. Do you eat farmed fish? I don't eat any fish. Um, no, I'm Seagan. As a as a blowfish. <laughs> as a blowfish, I, I can't be a cannibal. So I, I'm a seagull. <laughs> I, I don't eat any fish, but I, I do eat land mammals. Um, land, anything land-based I'll eat, uh, including humans, given the chance. Uh, it's not a bad idea, actually. That'll help, <laughs> well, help population. Would. Don't go there. Moving on. Moving swiftly on. The, you know, it's it's a tricky beast. It comes back to what I said right at the start about this idea of, of uh, farming. You know, we, we protect, don't we? We farm in this, we protect it, because if we don't have it, we'll die and all this, that and the other. But it's it's always seemingly just too far and too much. You know, the uh, the f- there are many, many examples around the world when it comes to intensive farming where there are those examples uh, that... How's the best way to put this? They're still getting the same produce, be it plant matter or be it animals, whatever, but they're going about it in a completely different way, in in a harmonious way. And I think a very interesting example to the idea of, uh, you know, functional farming, and aquaculture is in this as well. But this is a little bit uh, interesting, but I, I think it's good to talk about palm oil. Now, that's very much a watchword for, oh, no, bad, bad, bad. Um, You know, there are many campaigns out there to save the orangutans and talking about palm oil. And there is no doubt that on the whole, it's a very corrupt industry and there is not very much regulation and it's causing huge damage to these areas in Sumatra. However, on paper, and this is where it gets tricky, on paper, if palm oil plantations were used sustainably under the kind of legislation that we in Europe and in the UK would enforce if the same area was reused, if rather than killing an orangutan when it appeared, you know, that loss was accepted, they were moved on, they were, you know, tagged and moved elsewhere, this, that and the other. Well, then actually, palm oil is the best thing you can grow because its yield is so massive. So here you've got almost the golden bullet being wrapped in a poisonous rag because it's not being done like that. It's being, you know, slashed and burned and and, and, and aquaculture does the same mm. where fish are being grown, uh, and I do mean grown, in conditions where it's all about their size, their size. They must be big, they must be big. They, they must, must look healthy as they well. They must look healthy. It doesn't matter if they are. They must be big and they must look healthy. Rather than saying, well, actually, hang on, rather than having 15 metric tonnes of fish that will grow this year with five metric tons not making the grade let's just do 10 metric tons and have nine metric tons make the grade you know the the difference is so minor and yet the the sort of the benefit is so massive and it's strange because i think that people's personal changes and personal t- personal tastes 
have started to move towards a more artisan kind of flavor. You pick the special coffee in the special way and, you know, people are willing to spend a bit more for, for it. So it's just mad it is, that yeah. we're having this massive impact. Again, the same reason we've said it many times, because we want it now. We want it now. We want it now. Absolutely. And um, never is that actually um, being seen more, I guess, with more urgency in what I, you know, throughout my career than in Kenya. So um, there's a huge issue of of human growth in Kenya and a place called Laikipia has some of the, the fastest growing populations of humans, you know, really across Africa and anywhere in the world. And of course, you have a, a healthy population, healthy, uh, just in one this particular area. Don't, don't get me wrong. Elephant, African elephant populations are not healthy. They're actually in decline on the whole. But in this place... I like the way you slip that in there, just you know, little, <laughs> yeah. little disclaimer. Well, it's absolutely true. And um, in this particular area, actually, to the local attitude um, to elephants is that they're a nuisance and they're a pain. And one of the ways they mitigate this conflict, basically in the dry season, elephants will eat all the crops of the local people and the local people they're putting up all these new areas these new shambas these new farms in places where in history they were migratory routes for all of these families these important migratory routes that they had for hundreds of years are now just disappearing this whole habitat is becoming completely fragmented and you've got this huge the largest land mammal on earth now running riot in somebody's farm eating all their food and then their livelihoods being destroyed. So one of the ways, I just want to know your opinion on this, one of the ways they mitigate this conflict simply because they have to is they dart the elephant, they put it on a truck, and they they put it onto the other side of Nairobi, they transport it elsewhere and put it in a place where there's less people. What do you think about that? Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? (laughs) I think that... Bearing in mind now, it's Kenya, you know, we're not here in the Mm. UK, uh, which is... Because we shoot seals here, but they they spend thousands of pounds or or whatever Kenyan shillings mm. on moving elephants. Uh, it's it's better than shooting them. But when you're, I, I mean, I think a little bit of backstory for anyone who's listening who might not know too much about elephants. Um, Lizzie is a big big elephant buff. She knows all the scores. And elephants are, and do please correct me if I'm wrong, are led by uh, a matriarch. They have intelligence and culture that's been passed down through years and years and years and years so what we're talking about here the the idea of a farm suddenly appearing on a migration route is no different from you walking your dog on the common that you've been walking for 20 years and then suddenly there being a block of flats there you know it's that kind of impact you are going to be pretty thrown up about it now you imagine you're walking your dog on the common you see the block of flats there, you're not happy about it, and the next thing you know, you're asleep, and you wake up in Glasgow. You think, what's happened there? Not Glasgow! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Glasgow. Isn't Glasgow's <laughs> lovely. Lovely. How dare you, Lizzie Daly? But that's kind of the, the, the sort of the thing Lizzie's laying out here, and I think that it's better than shooting them, but the, the elephant in the room, if you will, is terrible, nice. you sorry, is the placement of the farm, and then I think the attitude of them and us. Mm. It's always this attitude of, of them and us and you know that that it has to be the bit that needs needs to change because you see it in i mean i wanted to i wanted to mention this because when we were talking about ex- extinction I wanted to talk about those animals that really are quite close to the, the brink 
Uh, people know about tigers, elephants as well. Um, people are starting to become aware of things like pangolins, all that kind of jazz. But there's one particularly close to my heart uh, that sadly is likely not to come back, which is the vaquita. Do you know about the vaquita? No, tell me. The vaquita is a very small dolphin that lives in the Gulf of Mexico and it lives nowhere else. And the last population of this animal was numbered at, numbered at 12 Gosh, when was that? Uh, this year, in March. So this is March 2018. Twelve individuals. Twelve. And genetically, that's knackered. And that's the technical term of putting it. But the reason why this animal is in decline is not because people are hunting it. It's because people are netting, they're gill netting, for a fish called the Tabato fish, which is actually protected. They can't net for that either. Uh, so that they can sell just the swim bladders, not the meat, but just the swim bladders to the Chinese market. And it just when you say it like that, it's just so insane. It's like you know you building your um, your farm in the middle of an elephant's migration pass. You're going into their territory, their turf, and there's no concept of cake and eat it. There's no concept of this kind of this compromise, this half happy. Uh, I mean, when you've been in in Africa or the places you've been, have you ever seen a time when people have really lived side by side and have, you know, accepted that they're in an animal's world, not a human's world? No, it's always been the other way around. Always, always. Um, most definitely with elephants, I've seen that firsthand. Um, in a in a similar vein, it's funny, isn't it? How across completely different habitats, completely different species, all the same problems resonate. And um, we are going to move on to a, a positive story very shortly because I don't want to make everyone feel completely depressed. But um, well, I was going to ask you what you think can be done to to change that. Mm. How can we start impacting in a positive way? Yeah. Um. Well, f- firstly, just moving on to kind of what you said. Um. What I was actually there. Do you know Sudan the rhino? The, oh the yes. Male. Yes, I yeah. was there two weeks before he died. Oh my god! And they were they had this um you know IVF program. Give backstory for the people who yeah. who was Sudan. Sudan, sorry, so yeah. Sudan, sorry. I'm just we're having a great conversation. Two biologists in a room, here. very dangerous. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Sudan was the last male northern white rhino on the planet. There were only two other uh, female northern white rhinos and now officially as of 2018 they are the last females and they tried this IVF uh, program with with the male Sudan and he was ill for a while and yeah he he passed away and the program failed so that's it for this subspecies of of northern white rhino it's it was quite poignant i think that you know this whole article cropping up 60% of of the world's you know vertebrates and i saw firsthand you know, essentially the extinction of a subspecies. Mm. It's happening now. It is going on now. And and moving on to that positive, of course, is that there are some fantastic ways to mitigate this conflict, conflict and actually change it so that we can recognise what's going on. You know, we're living in a very crowded world now and we have to kind of think... And that's of, just this sound booth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one of the amazing ways that they're mitigating conflict in Kenya, actually, with the elephants, is they're using um, they're using bees. Elephants don't like bees. Did you know that? Uh, I I didn't know, but you know what? I'm not surprised. <laughs> and um, on these fences uh, around farms, around these important crops, they need right. They have beehives. 
So it keeps the elephants out and the people are able to yield this honey, which they can then sell. I mean, it's no real difference to the elephants. They're not, there's no conflict, essentially. So they're not getting injured and getting in, into these conflict situations. And it seems to work. I thought it was such a fantastic organic way to mitigate this conflict. We need more innovative ways to mitigate conflict. What, is, what would you say has stood out for you in, a, in an interesting way? The one that always jumps to mind uh, as a man who is super passionate about sharks, because, of course, sharks, you know, there will be, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a shark podcast. Don't you worry. I will duct tape Lizzie to a chair and make her listen (laughs) to sharks for far too long. But there is, uh, and it's becoming more and more uh, accepted now, that sharks are worth more alive than dead. So I read a, an article the other day that suggests that in Florida, a, um, a sort of a token shark there, if you will, let's say just, you know, a, a reef shark there, is worth 200 times more alive than it is dead. Mm-hmm. So this is things for like the diving industry and we're starting to, well, the fishing industry is finally starting to understand how important sharks are to populations of fish and keeping them healthy. And so when you can turn round to someone and say, yeah, okay, you can, you know, make $5 today by killing this creature or by changing this habitat, or you can make $50 at the end of next month by actually promoting this creature, then I think that is how you succeed. That is how you stop the hungry dog from eating grass, mm. is by offering it a burger at the end of the month, if it can just change things up a little. And, you know, one animal that will certainly never go extinct, aside from humans, unless we get Super Plague, volume 2.0. Or wiped out, yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump's still around, isn't he? We could, we could be minutes away right now. That's just his hairpiece. Good God. Um, the, the one animal that will never go extinct are cows, pigs, sheep. Why? because we breed them because we need them because we eat them this that and the other so i've you know i've said before uh almost jokingly but at the same time it does contain a, a grain of salt of truth uh why you know if you want to eat sharks if you want to eat you know things that i would abhor like bush meat or whale meat or stuff well then do it humanely and do it sustainably farm these animals so, oh well to farm them we need to have healthy fish populations than have healthy fish populations. Oh, to do that, we need to do this. And you suddenly realise, well, actually, if we go back to the start, we can really take hold of these things and, and make them, you know, make them decent. There are, I've read stories of farmers that use, when they're, they're growing their crops, they do simple things like they will plant around their crops, basically sacrifice plants, which pests will eat preferentially to their crops. So they still get their crop. You know, and they don't have to use pesticides or anything else. And then, again, because you're using that dollar, you can say, oh, it's not used pesticide. You can charge more for it. And and whenever people have been given an opportunity to make a bit more money, but they didn't realise they could, they'll take it. They'll mm. always, always take it. And so I think that's really important. And certainly the dive industry, taking people diving with all these animals, superb. It's a great way to get to know them. Uh, but I think as well... I know we have the seed bank up in uh, the frozen north of of I can't is it Norway? I can't. I can do you know about you this? It's Svalbard. It. I'm sure sure it is somewhere like that. So um, this is a, a giant underground facility which contains all the seeds of all the uh, flora that we have. So that you know, should there be a catastrophic wiping out of 
corn, we can regrow corn. But we can we should do that with animals. We should, you know, I'm a big believer in captive breeding. And I think it's hey. so important. Yeah, I think because I, I was really I'm really passionate about some of the work that Gerald Durrell did. Mm. And he was one of the first guys to he was the first guy to take zoos from being animal prisons and then being areas of education and learning. And because of the work that things like Doral Zoo and the Jersey Foundation have done, we still have animals that on this planet would already be wiped out. I mean, he in the 70s was trying to save the eye you know, from Madagascar, this is a, a lemur that's uh, considered dangerous. Well, yeah. yeah, I was going to say it was ugly as sin, <laughs> but never mind. But it's considered, you know, demonic, and uh, the the people of Madagascar kill it, and all this. And he was already, you know, protecting them. And I think that that's another thing we can do, where we actually look at a scenario and realise that the social economics of that area are not going to save that animal. Okay, can we step in? Can we take these animals? Mm. Can we take their genes? Can we take their populations? and look after them in a controlled environment. Absolutely. And um, that actually leads on on to the next point very nicely because, to be honest, the future of conservation does involve the economics and social aspect of, you know, us and everything to do with that animal. That's really, really important. And um, let me just... I just want to ask you, if there is there a shark that you particularly love and there's a success story of... Oh God! Um, is there a sharky success story? Sadly, I don't. I don't okay. think there is. But there is a What's fishy it? success story. Go on. Um, so there is a, a well-known tropical fish, which many people listening right now, if they have an aquarium, may even have. It's a red-tailed black shark. It's a it's a feisty little fish. You need to keep it in a decent-sized aquarium, well filtered, regular water changes, uh, <laughs> okay. you know, all that kind of stuff. But the the red-tailed black shark, and indeed another uh, kind of fish, the clownlet. These both these fish were going to become extinct. They're in the wild, and they were their population was declining rapidly through pollution, through human development. They were going to become extinct, and then because they became a prize piece for aquaria, the local people realised how easy it was to uh, to breed them in the rivers, and they for like the the clown loach for example they just put down little pyramids of bamboo that their clown loach live in and and now these animals not only is it a thriving industry for these people who are who are technically on the, the bread line before but now have got a job they you know we've kept this species alive because people's love for it in in fish tanks i mean that that is win and winner chicken dinner so it's not a sharky success story but it is a fishy, fishy success, success story. story that's brilliant i love that so conservation stories and um, and I guess just a no- a more information on which species we need to conserve and why and how amazing the natural world is and it can actually bring back species from, from going extinct. But tell me if you don't agree. Um, I mean, it all comes down really to to us and our and our activity, largely driven by our demand for having more than we need. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, we have some of the, you know, we're some of the most users of single-use plastic, which we mentioned on our last podcast. What would you like to see, you know, for the future of conservation and, and to prevent these, this mass extinction, if you like, what would be the biggest thing for you to see from the public and from future generations? The removal of the concept of, and I'm doing speech marks here, human rights and the creation of life rights as in simple as that humans are superior to other animals or Uh, as in we are all animals as in we are all the same we do exactly the same as what animals do and enough 
with this superior attitude because it's wrong. And that has been the biggest problem. Uh, I saw the other day a couple of kids uh, trying to go on a climbing frame, but there was a snail on it. And rather than just pick the snail up and move it elsewhere, they started like trying to throw stones at the snail because they didn't want to touch it and it was their climbing frame. And I mean, they're kids. Okay, they're kids. I'm not going to hold that against them. But the only person or people that are going to teach them to change is us. And while our society keeps humans at the top of the scale and humans are great at everything, nothing's going to change. So for me, it would be creating life rights. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's this attitude of of doing things for ease it's cheap it's quick and it's almost this kind of throwaway you know very self-righteous attitude and the irony is that it is in the future going to also affect us and future generations so so tom just to finish off on a positive we like finishing on a positive here how do you think other people can help i mean reading this article very stark article where would you say for someone to go or, or something to do what would be your bit of advice I, as you well know, smallest stones start the avalanche. That's what I'm always saying and always banging on about. So join a conservation society. You know, whatever whatever's close to your heart, maybe it's the World Wildlife Fund, maybe it's Marine Conservation Society, the Shark Trust, you know, Orangutan Fund, it doesn't matter. Give them a little bit of your money and let them work on your behalf. Really easy. If you've got a garden, or even if you don't, you can create wildlife just right next to you and it's amazing it's so cool something like a bird feeder you might not think it makes a lot of difference but it does there's loads of little tiny things you can do put up a bat box put up a swallow box you know go out and have you know have a walk go and see the life around you because when you love something you'll fight to protect it Absolutely. That's such a lovely message and I completely agree. And it, it is really down from the small things in your back garden and the urban wildlife around you um, to the big things across the other side of the world. And actually all these problems resonate with one another. So very, very interesting, Tom. Thank you so much um, for sharing all your marine stories there, your fishy success tales as well. I, I did talk a bit about elephants as well. And elephants, I know. I know. You're going terrestrial I now. Know. <laughs> Previously, I only knew about elephant <laughs> seals, but I'm, I'm getting all up into it. <laughs> Loving that pachyderm family. <laughs> so many different aspects to think about, but essentially all these problems resonate where, wherever you are in the world. And we as humans have to learn how to coexist alongside wildlife for the future. So very important message from Tom there as well. So join us next time on Wake Up and Smell the Coffee. Tom, thank you for your fishy success stories there. Thank you very much. Always brilliant. Always, always lovely, <laughs> lovely, lovely. And we'll see you next time. Bye. See ya. It's good every wildlife for the future so very important message from tom there as well so join us next time on wake up and smell the coffee tom thank you for your fishy success stories there thank you very much always brilliant always, always lovely, <laughs> lovely lovely and we'll see you next time bye see ya it's got where every day kill us kill it